Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Associate Editor Dr. Helen Heslop discusses banked allogeneic immune effector cells with blood author Dr. Jeffrey Miller. My name is Helen Heslop, and I'm at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and I direct the Center for Cell and Gene Therapy. We thought that we would like to have a review series on banked allogeneic immune effector cells um, genetically modified with the chimeric antigen receptor because there's a lot of effort um, looking at the source of cells at present. I think everyone knows that autologous um, CAR T-cell therapies for lymphoma and myeloma have had very impressive activity in patients with relapse disease and are now broadly used as um, FDA-approved products in the US with about six products currently licensed. But although these um, cells have been very effective in treating patients with um, refractory or relapsed lymphoma and myeloma, they do have some limitations. And one is that manufacturing a patient-specific product can take quite a long time and often these patients have rapidly progressive disease, so they need therapy sooner. You can get manufacturing failures because a lot of these patients have received previous chemotherapy and may have immune cells that are not as fit as we'd like them to be. So for these reasons, we thought it was timely to have this review series that would focus on what types of cells we could use as banked allogeneic cells to be carriers for chimeric antigen receptors, which have these beneficial effects. I think there's an interest in banked allogeneic immune effector cells as a target for chimeric antigen receptors because there's a number of um, academic institutions and companies developing strategies in the clinic at present. And it seemed appropriate to look at all the different types of cells and discuss the potential benefits of each different type. So the goal of this review series was to cover major types of banked allogeneic cells. So the autologous products, which are currently in the clinic with the commercial CAR T cells, are all alpha beta T cells. So one type of banked product is to use gene editing to make a universal bank that can then be um, modified with chimeric antigen receptors. And Dr. Kazim from Great Ormond Street has provided a very nice overview of this topic. A second strategy is to use immune effectors that do not recognize alloantigen. And Leonard Metalitzer and colleagues discusses NKT cells and other innate immune effectors that have these properties. And then another strategy is to use virus-specific T cells, which have a defined receptor. And Cleo Rooney and colleagues discuss how you can bank on virus-specific T cells as a target for genetic modification. There are two other topics that I think Jeff Miller is going to cover, and one of them is the benefits of using iPSCs as a source of immune effectors, and the other would be using natural killer cells. All these articles are integrated. They're each discussing a different type of cell and what is needed for this to be translatable to the clinic. One of the risks of using a banked allogeneic cell product is that you might get graft versus host disease. And the five articles talk about different strategies to avoid allo-reactivity. Another risk is that the cells may be rejected by the 
patient's immune system, and some of the articles also discuss novel strategies to avoid this complication. My name is Jeff Miller. Um, I am from the University of Minnesota. I'm the Deputy Director of the Cancer Center, and I've been interested in NK cell therapy from multiple different sources. The topic of the review series in general is really a broad interest to the field. I think because where the field started now, as we have already heard, has been in the setting of autologous T cells. You know, we have FDA approved products, which are difficult because they're individually collected from patients. They have to go through a manufacturing facility. And the other thing is, you know, the we have an economic responsibility in our healthcare system, and these are really, really expensive, not only for the production end, but we're hearing that the cumulative cost of care with the side effects from this therapy, being cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity can be quite extensive with hospitalizations. So it's really been a big interest to see if we can now make the next big leap, if you will, to use allogeneic cells. Um, and we're going to get into some of the details, but I think these allogeneic cells have immediate benefit. They're available. They're typically would be cryopreserved. They would be batch produced in a manufacturing run. And I think if we can get them to be maybe not even equivalent, but very close to what we have seen with the FDA-approved products. There are huge number of advantages to these off-the-shelf products. I think that this is a particular interest to hematology. And let me just take the settings, you know, especially the most acute settings would be acute lymphocytic leukemia, for example. And remember, we haven't even gotten into, in my mind, effective products for the main adult hematologic malignancy, which is acute myeloid leukemias. But I think we're all really interested in the limitations of the current therapies we have. And, um, you know, even though bone marrow transplantation is near and dear to my heart, I think we're now finding that we might be able to challenge some settings of bone marrow transplant or at least to add to them with cell therapy. So I think we see this as a tremendous area of growth in the hematologic malignancies for sure. And I think there's a lot of hope that this will even go beyond hematologic malignancies to solid tumors. But from the ASH perspective, we're all really interested in hemalignancies. This is where the proof of concept is. And I think this is the natural setting to see where we can use these off the shelf cells. The biggest takeaway from our series was really focused on the starting material about induced pluripotent stem cells. And the, the focus in our particular article was based on what is being clinically implemented now. And, and I'll cover a little bit the differential here. So we specifically discussed iPS-derived T cells and iPS-derived NK cells. You know, the advantages of the induced pluripotent stem cell technology you know, they come from fibroblasts, which are adult tissues. They get de-differentiated to this induced pluripotent stem cell stage. And then they can be induced to not only NK cells and T cells, and we didn't talk about very much in the review series as macrophages, but that's another cell type that could come. We like the iPSC platform because of the ease of genetic modification. 
And of all the potential lymphocyte off-the-shelf products that are out there, that's the only one that's really off-the-shelf, meaning you can establish one clonal cell bank that really has no limitations as its longevity. You know, the other things that are going on in the field, at least for the NK cell field, is starting off with adult stem cells or umbilical cord blood stem cells. But they also eventually will have limitations about how many can manufacture it from the starting unit. So that was the focus of our article. One of the things that we covered in this series is some of the regulatory challenges that go on with these very primitive cells. You know, the FDA made the field start with genetically non-modified cells, and then very quickly they started adding a number of gene modifications including chimeric, chimeric antigen receptors to give these cells specificity. So, you know, the field is very much early than the commercially available car. And this is really the starting place and really generating a huge amount of excitement about where the field has been. But I should really highlight that nothing is FDA approved yet. And that's really the challenge for the field is what is the best cell? What is the survivability of the cells after adoptive transfer compared to what's really been established in the CAR-T commercial field that we've seen now? Why is this of interest in the field? You know, my own expertise has been in the NK cell field, but the other thing that we try to bring up in our article is that there has been, I think, a big scientific push to see what other lineages of cells can come out of interdisciplinary potent stem cells. And Michelle Sandlein has been a, you know, a leader in this field. He's been a leader in the CAR T cell field. And in his lab, they've worked out some of the very complicated details about how to take an iPS cell and induce this differentiation to a bona fide T cell. You know, and what what would need to be the characteristics of those cells um, for an off-the-shelf product, including modifying the expression of endogenous TCR and making sure that these cells are functional with the appropriate cars. So I think the other unique aspect, which is really groundbreaking, is those cells are now in the clinic, despite all the great science that he's done, but this is really setting the stage, I think, for a number of other groups for off-the-shelf products to understand, you know, what do we do in the T-cell field? And the second question for all of us is, what's the best lineage of cells? And I think we've heard from Helen about the cells in the series where NK cells, T-cells, NKT cells, and others as well. Jeff, there's also been some advances with autologous products. Uh, Carl June presented some very nice data at ASH about short manufacturing and adding an IL-18, which produced very impressive response rates in patients who'd relapsed after the commercial cars. So I think both areas are moving. What do you think would be needed for allogeneic bank cells to be an alternative to the current commercial CD19 autologous products? Helen, the question is really, you know, what are the advantages to bank cells and, and what are the challenges? And I, I think even uh, since the series is coming out now, this has been really a timely topic in the field. I think, you know, one of the challenges with bank cells is how are they going to compare with autologous cells? So 
one of my takeaways of what's going on in the field, which is really being challenged right now, is the whole field of autologous versus allogeneic. And the specific things, and please comment on this further, that I see is that in the autologous setting, we know that the persistence and the longevity of cells can be potentially up to years. And when I talk about that, I talk about, you know, functional persistence over time, which I think is the goal that we're trying to achieve. The big thing that's brought up in, I think, the allogeneic field that I've been challenged with a lot is what is the persistence of an allogeneic cell, whether it be a T-cell lineage or an NK cell lineage. And if we can't improve this persistence, are we going to ever get to the longevity or the durability of responses, especially that's been established with hematologic malignancies with autologous CAR T-cells? I agree that's a very interesting question, Jeff. If you look at a lot of different banked allogeneic cell products, the persistence is a lot less, and in some cases, the expansion is also dramatically less. Yet you are seeing some responses, but then the important question, I think, for patients is are these long-lived responses that are going to give you the same disease-free survival at two and five years as we're starting to see now with longer follow-up of the autologous products? I agree. As long as we're talking about this, I have been referring a number of my colleagues to a publication that you participated on in Nature Biotechnology. You know, the question is how to overcome this you know, allo rejection vector where the, you know, the patients have these good T cells and, you know, they they seem to be prone to wanting to reject an allogeneic product. So, you know, in this article that came from the Baylor group, we've all been very interested in this alloimmune defense receptor. You know, this is, I guess, one example about how people are trying to overcome this rejection vector. And I was wondering if you wanted to add in any feelings of your own about the ADR receptor that you guys published on and, you know, from the Baylor group or any other strategies to see about how we can get around this question, which is going to be a big question in the field, clearly. The ADR strategy was developed in Max Mamonkin's lab by a very talented graduate student, Bayan Mo. And the preclinical data has been published. Um, it is going to be translated to the clinic, both in the academic sense, um, here by Max, and, and it's also been licensed by some companies who are going to evaluate it in their banked allogeneic cells. So I think we'll learn whether the promising findings in the preclinical studies translate to the clinic. And there's a number of other strategies. I think in the article that Cleo Rooney and colleagues wrote about banked allogeneic cells, they talked about the fact that a CD30 car might also be able to eliminate alloreactive populations. And obviously, a lot of the studies are also looking at downregulating molecules that may stimulate alloreactivity. So I think there's a lot of different strategies being evaluated, and we'll have to see from clinical trials which ones prove to be effective or whether we need to undertake other strategies to improve the function of the bank cells, such as adding cytokine genes or cytokine receptor genes to enhance their persistence. So a lot of different strategies to evaluate, I think, and hopefully we'll learn which ones are beneficial clinically. Just one comment on that I'd like to highlight for the ASH audience, because that is obviously the field we work in. 
you know, this is a really rich and fascinating, rapidly developing field for research, you know, which is really, I think, the highlight of the society. And uh, for those reading into this area, it's really a rich area with many, many questions that remain to really optimize this therapy. I think we're not yet at the level to really directly compete with autologous products that are FDA approved, but we certainly want to be there. And there's enough science going on with a lot of the possibilities that have been covered in the series that I honestly think we can get there. We're not there yet, but we have work to do and everybody interested in hematology research should be encouraged to want to get there. I just want to finish up perhaps by talking about access. We talked at the beginning about how one of the beneficial features of bank cells is they're immediately available, which is important to a lot of patients with B-cell lymphoma and even more so once you're treating T-cell lymphoma and AML. But there's other issues with access too. Cost has been a challenge for many patients getting access to the current commercial products. And I wanted to know, Jeff, what you thought about cost of banked products and what it might be. I think we hope that it may be less because you can make a number of products from one donor. But what are your thoughts on that? I think that the cost issue is really an important one. You know, as we all pay for health insurance, we got to make sure the system stays economically feasible. <laughs> but, you know, and I don't know a lot of specifics about this. I've asked the question a lot, at least from industry, about what they think the cost will be. The ideas that I've heard at least bantered about, and certainly I have, you know, direct knowledge of any kind, but to really be in this economic feasibility point, I think we look at like monoclonal antibody therapy for a year, and it, it, we really need to get the therapeutic product to be somewhere to what these commercial antibodies are being, which I think is on the range of a hundred thousand or so. I think that's what the goal is. And as you know, I'm hearing about different companies with interest to make these, you know, less like, you know, we've started in the lab with putting things in cell factories or whatever to really getting into bioreactors. Like I do feel confident that if we can prove the functional activity and the durable efficacy, that somebody is going to have the knowledge with bioreactors to really scale this up to get into this feasible range. The last thing, Helen, which I wanted to point out, besides the immediate availability piece, and this has really come up a lot, at least in the NK cell space, is, you know, depending, you know, like if we make a cell as durable or as persistent as a T cell, I think we're going to start seeing different toxicities, if you will. I do like the idea that an allogeneic product has a safety valve in that they'll have limited persistence. You know, we've been trying to think of cell products with a pharmacokinetic curve of approximately three months, which then, if you can really make this feasible and it makes maintenance therapy and dosing you know, quarterly or every half year. If you can just get this all into the outpatient clinic setting, I think it's another really interesting advantage that's completely unexplored. I think that's true. But then one question that would come up is, do you need cytoreduction or lymphodepletion before each course, or can you somehow avoid that need, which would, 
I I'm think glad you asked that question, Helen, because this is another big major question in the field. You know, the one thing that I've realized as we've started to take acute leukemia patients and try to give them the same high-dose cytoxin and fludarabine into other settings or into, you know, community sites, this will never work. So we do have to find alternatives to lymphodepletion. I think the hope is with genetically modified products that we will be able to obviate the need for lymphodepleting chemotherapy to allow this to happen. But I do agree that we don't have the answer yet. You know, whether it's the ADR receptor or other things that are going to facilitate that, even some endogenous cytokines, there's a couple of non-human primate studies that maybe suggest you can overcome, you know, this T-cell rejection vector that has clearly been established. But I do agree with you. It's a major, major question that needs to be answered. If we could do it by engineering the product, I think we really have a future. And this repeated courses of high-dose lymphodepletion, I think, are not going to be sustainable to the patients that we're treating. I think it's a very active area, and I think this is a timely review series, and I think we all look forward to seeing how this field develops in the next five to ten years. I'd like to thank you for listening. I think, as you've heard, both Jeff and I are very excited about the potential of this area, and I'd like to invite you to uh, read the review articles in blood and then follow this area as it progresses over the next few years. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Blood Podcast. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.